All right. Well, thanks so much to everybody for being with us today. And um, hope, like I said, hope everybody's power has returned and everybody's staying warm and okay throughout this whole thing. So let's get started. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Psalms chapter or Psalm number 22. I forget it's, it, when we're talking about the Psalms quite often, it isn't like chapter number. You, 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 you don't call them chapters. You just call each of them different Psalms. These are ancient Hebrew poems. Uh, and so today we're going to look at one specific ancient Hebrew poem, uh, which is Psalm 22. And we're going to kind of do a, a bit of a, a meditation on just this one Psalm. I realized this week as I was getting ready for this, I don't, in, in the entire time that we've been doing Collective Church, which is seven years now, I have not just like honed in on one specific psalm more than like once or twice. It, it's just not something I've done very often. We'll use the psalms to sort of coordinate with other passages, but it's very rare that we just like sit down and look at one particular psalm um, because there's, there's no narrative. It's, it, it, it is poetry. So it, it's one of those things that you sort of have to have um, kind of a, an eye for and an ear for. Um, to sort of fully appreciate what's going on. So that's that's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and, and go... We're, we're, it's almost like um, freshman poetry class, I guess, um, if, if that's a thing anybody ever took in college. Um, but that we're, we're going to be sort of meditating on on this one particular psalm. So we're just going to jump right into it and see where, where it takes us. This is... Uh, and, and the reason we're doing this one is because, uh, like I said at the beginning of the year, we're just going to sort of let the lectionary kind of guide where we go. And today... Um, the, the choices were either a passage from Genesis that I preached on not that long ago, um, and then a passage uh, from the New, or one or two passages from the New Testament that I also have preached from not that long ago. So Psalm 22 was kind of what was left. Um, and, and so I decided, like, well, like I said, this is not something I do very often. So um, we'll, we'll just do that. So Psalm 22, just beginning here. Psalm 22 it begins at least. It is a it's a pretty traditional psalm of lament, and so if we look at just verse one and verses one and two, it begins with a very lamenting type of posture. So, uh, Psalm twenty two verse one it says, the the poet says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Which, by the way, for those of us who have ever been to an Easter service, should sound very familiar. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? so far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. So it kind of continues on for this way, for, for this, uh, for, for quite a while in that particular vein. And actually, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 five different times during his life, including, as, as we just saw, his dying moments. This, this line here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is very famously a prayer that Jesus prays while he's about to die on the cross. So this is, this is a psalm of lament, but it's also a pretty well-known psalm of lament, specifically to, to those of us who are familiar with the, what, we, what we call the New Testament, um, because of the story of Jesus dying on the cross and uttering these words. So what's interesting, though, is that the lectionary, the, the, the guide that sort of tells pastors, preachers, and teachers what to be, like kind of guides us towards what to be talking about on any particular Sunday, the lectionary doesn't really want us to talk about, today at least, the beginning of Psalm 22. Like I just read to you from the first two verses, but these two verses aren't actually the things that the lectionary wants to highlight. The pa uh, What's interesting here is the, the lectionary wants us to talk about the final few verses of the poem. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to jump to chapter to verse 23, which is where the lectionary wants us to start. And we're going to read through the end of the, of the psalm. 
and then we're going to kind of go back and and look at pieces of it as we go. So we'll we'll just look at the whole thing and then we'll we'll backtrack. So uh, just so we've already looked at the beginning of it. The my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So now we're going to fast forward and jump down to verse twenty three. So uh, and then we'll just read to the end. And so it says. In verse 23, it says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and his, he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to, to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now, the final line of this, he has done it, seems very different from the first line of the poem, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? So the passage, all the passages before verse 23 are a, a cry for help. They're, they're a lament. They are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the lectionary today, at least, wants us doesn't want us to focus on all the lament parts. The lectionary wants us to start in verse 23, which is pretty much where the happy stuff starts happening. So the structure of the psalm is a lament and a cry for help. And then the last bit, the last portion of the psalm is sort of a a word of praise and gratitude for all the good things that God has done, which it to me it, it seems interesting it seems a little bit frustrating actually that the lectionary is like just ignore the lament part and just talk about like the good celebratory stuff that comes at the end just literally skip to the end of the of the passage until it gets happy and so at face value i have a real problem with this approach um and i i, I don't I, I don't think it serves us well to gloss over the struggle and go straight to but hey everything is great and now I should say later on in in the calendar year, later on in the season of Lent, the the, the lectionary is going to backtrack and do the entire the entirety of Psalm twenty two. But here it's interesting that like why stop down on this particular Sunday, especially in a season like Lent, which is all kind of bent towards ache and loss and groaning and longing. Why take a Sunday and only focus on sort of the the brighter, happier spots? in this particular passage. And so I, I don't think what we're supposed to do is pretend like everything is fine. I don't think that that's the point of this particular passage in the lectionary. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think we're supposed to just um, like close our eyes and ears until we get to verse 23 and say like, see, everything's great. Um, I know lots of people, I, ha I have known lots of people in my life um, in, in my time doing ministry who like that is their posture towards any kind of struggle or suffering, which is to basically be like, yes, but Jesus, you know, and like smiley face and then really no acknowledgement of, of any sort of struggle. And I, I don't, I, I don't think that's particularly helpful, but, but again, I don't think that's what we're supposed to do here. I think the point of this is not to pretend like everything is fine. I think the point of this is to acknowledge where this passage comes from. But then also to kind of 
lean in, at least on this particular Sunday, lean towards sort of the hope and the joy that the latter half of this passage is offering. So maybe there's something more going on than just skipping to the end. So uh, if you would turn to the book of Esther, chapter 8. I actually never uh, get to talk about Esther all that much. It's just... It, it's one of those things, like there's so much going on in the scriptures. And so Esther is just one of those those books that if you don't talk about the entire story, it's difficult to sort of hone in on one particular thing. So, but we are going to look at the book of Esther and here's why. Psalm 22, the, the, the 22nd Psalm here, even though it is quoted by Jesus, this isn't, Jesus's quote isn't the first time that Psalm 22 is invoked later on after um, after it's written. So Psalm 22 is actually one of the key passages used in a very well-known, widely celebrated Jewish holiday known as Purim. And Purim is a celebration of, and a remembrance of the book of Esther or the story in, in the book of Esther. So real quick, because again, the, the story, if you're not familiar with the story of Esther, it's, it's a long story. So basically, I'm just going to kind of give you briefly the highlights. Esther is a Jewish girl living in captivity in Persia. And um, and so she, she is um, part of what, what was often referred to or what continues to be often referred to as the Jewish diaspora in Persia. So there comes a point along the way where the king in Persia, uh, for lots of really upsetting, disturbing reasons, becomes in need of a new queen. And so there's like this basically like a contest to see who gets to be the new queen. And Esther is, uh, with, without revealing her, um, her heritage, Esther wins the contest basically and becomes the new queen. And at a certain point, Esther has a cousin named Mordecai. And Mordecai, also Jewish, but he is, he is known to be Jewish in this part of the world. And Mordecai really, really upsets a guy named Haman. And, and the reason that's a bad thing is because Haman is really, really close with the king. And so Haman, being the guy that he is, decides he wants to get rid of Mordecai, but he can't just get rid of Mordecai just because he doesn't like him. And so what Haman decides to do is he creates this entire, uh, ep like basically an entire structural event with the power that he has with his access to the king in which all Jewish citizens in Persia are subject to violence and murder on one particular day, like coming up on the calendar. And so this is basically like Haman's plot to kill Mordecai without it becoming obvious that he just really just wants to kill Mordecai. So, so this, all this happens. And then Mordecai finding out that this is gonna happen goes to his cousin Esther and says like, look, you're the queen. You're the only one that can stop this. So then Esther goes to the king with a lot of fear and basically tells the king what's going on. And at a certain point, the king decides, like, this is, like, I'd rather this not happen. Like, basically, all this happened um, under the king's nose, but without him sort of realizing, like, the whole scope of what was going on. And so, so the king becomes really upset. He has Haman killed. And um, then there, there comes a point, basically, and this is, this is a little bit of a, a upsetting kind of part of it, which is basically, like, the king can't, just call off the day for whatever reason. I don't know why the king's power is limited in this way, but it is. And so basically what the king decides to do is he issues another edict, which basically says that the Jewish citizens are allowed to defend themselves if somebody... It's basically like like an ancient version of the purge. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a really weird, upsetting kind of idea that, that's set up in this. I, I Honestly, I can't believe more attempts to make this into a movie or like a 10-part Netflix series hasn't happened yet because this is so like just dripping with drama and characters and plot twists. And so 
so basically what happens is the king issues another edict that says that people are allowed to defend themselves, um, which is going to result in a lot of violence. But ultimately what ends up happening is that the Jewish people are not wiped out in Persia on that on this particular day, even though also Haman is killed. Um, but I, I can't remember if I mentioned that or not. So all of this exists in, in the book of Esther. So um, in Esther chapter 8, verse 3, it says this. Going back to when they're trying to figure out, like, how are we going to deal with this this problem? In verse eight, it says, or in verse three, it says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged, um, I'm sorry, she she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended his golden scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it please the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is right is the right thing for me to do. And if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the, Ag- the Agagite, devised and, and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. So, and then, uh, and then we'll read verse six. And it says, for how can I bear to see a disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the, the destruction of my family? So again, it, this is Esther basically like her last ditch effort to try and save her people and then that's when the king issues the edict that says that jewish citizens can fight back or they can defend themselves if they need to and then um and then if you jump over to chapter 9 verse 20 after everything has happened after the jewish people have survived this in verse 20 it says mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had, they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. So this is so it's interesting that most of this story is, exists in a place of mourning, of grieving, of terror, of just like this impending sense, like sense of dread and doom that is just waiting around the corner for this entire population of people. And then it ends and it says Mordecai wrote all this down and he sends the story to everybody else and he says, listen, we were done. We were we we were in we were in the worst possible position we could be in, and somehow we survived. And so the and so this this word goes out to to say, remember this story. Remember that there this was a story that did involve weeping and groaning and begging for our lives, but it also involved some sort of deliverance and some sort of redemption and renewal. And so he talks about joy. In the midst of this, so Psalm here. Here's why we're getting into this whole this whole thing. Psalm 22, re, the reading of Psalm 22 is a key part of the celebration of Purim, which is the remembrance of this story of the story of Esther. And so, as part of the ongoing remembrance of the story, in which all hope seems lost, and then the lives of the people are are seemingly miraculously saved, they recite Psalm 22. Psalm 22 goes with the story of Esther. In fact, a lot of people who celebrate Purim will say that Psalm 22 almost directly foreshadows the entire narrative arc of Esther. Like you can you can just like lay it on top of the story and you can find like different beats of the story all through Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is an exploration of the full range of emotions and postures of faith. 
It reflects the darkest of the dark and the most hopeful impulses that we have all in one place. So when people celebrate Purim, what they're doing is they're saying, yeah, there are these moments where it feels like all hope is lost, where it feels like things are bad, but we, we celebrate Purim as a, as a reminder. We celebrate the story of Esther as a reminder that even in our darkest moments, maybe those aren't the final moments. So we are in the middle of the season of Lent. Um, it, for those of us who are observing Lent in some sort of way, uh, this is something you probably are thinking about a lot. So we're, we're in the season of Lent, and Lent is a season in which we acknowledge lack and longing. And the assumption, I think, for those, for the, for the, I, I can't, I, I don't know the minds of the people who put together the lectionary, but I think the assumption is that we're already in the midst of the lack and the longing. And that's what this season is for. So to acknowledge, so the season is to acknowledge all the ways that we are groaning and longing for a better tomorrow. The season of Lent mostly exists in the stage of the story where it feels like all hope is lost. So I would argue that Psalm 22 is the poet's way of saying, if we will explore the full range of our experiences, we might discover new ways of looking for hope. So what the, what the, the writer here, I would argue, what the writer here is doing is inviting us towards a, a reorientation and a new posture towards reality. So you have, like, you, you begin with one type of orientation and then something disrupts that orientation. Like, Someone issuing an edict that says that your life is, is less valuable than the lives of other citizens. Or, um, we, or, or we've been doing our best to avoid a devastating pandemic. And so, and it feels like, like we've been here for like a year almost doing this. And so there are these moments where things are dark. And there are these moments when things where, where the opening of this passage is the most relatable, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we have this orientation and then we find ourselves in a disorientation, which is, I think, probably where a lot of us have been for a while. And then the psalmist, I would argue, is saying, but, but what if we can move towards a reorientation? What if we can just sort of shift the way we see things? What if we can kind of change the lenses a bit? And then maybe when, if you begin in verse 23, after you've done all that, then all of a sudden verse 23 is brimming with life and new hope and possibilities. So I would argue that the psalm is inviting us to adopt four, at least probably more, but uh, at least four different postures uh, as a way of reorient reorienting ourselves. So go back to Psalm chapter or Psalm number 22 and we'll sort of look at what those postures are. So I would say that the first posture, here, actually let's look at um, verse 22. Verse 22, it says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And this word fear, by the way, um, it's not about terror. I think this is one of those things that we kind of get tripped up on. Fear here is not terror. Fear is um, reverence. It's awe. It is, it is a recognition that there is something larger than ourselves. And so... Um, so that's what it says here. So it says, you who fear, you who stand in awe of the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Um, so I would argue that the first posture that this passage, this poem is inviting us to, to adopt is a, a posture of awe and of, of wonder. Um, I've, we've, we've quoted before from um, the Jewish theologian, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who, who, who famously wrote, I didn't ask for success, I asked for wonder. 
And I think, um, I think wonder for a lot of us has been in really short supply. And I don't know about you, but I could really use some wonder and some awe these days. So I would argue that one of the, one of the postures that we're invited to, as we sort of emerge from, my God, my God, my, why have you forsaken me, into sort of a, but maybe there's something new being born here. Maybe there's a reorientation. I think it begins with awe. I, I think it begins with, with a sense of, oh, there's so much more going on. Maybe, maybe we've lost our sense of wonder and curiosity. And maybe we need to be reminded of what it means to be alive in this world and all of the amazing things in our midst. And this is hard to do when we've been where we've been and we've seen what we've seen and we've lived the way that we've lived um, for the past year. And so this is an invitation to, in our darkest moments, find some sense of awe, some sense of there, maybe there's something larger than ourselves. Look, uh, jump down to verse 27. Uh, it says, at the ends of the, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. In other words, the more we see, the more we will understand how little we've seen. How, how much space there is for awe and wonder in this story. We begin to see ourselves of a lar- as part of a larger story. We allow the bigness and of life and existence to, to take our breath away. That is, um, that is an invitation that we're given that to, to take a new posture of maybe, maybe the thing that's killing us is the sense of everything is the same, the mundane. They, they say that, um, I I forget who I first heard say this. Um, but I think it might've been Rob Bell that, um, um, the despair is the belief that tomorrow will be exactly the same as today, the loss of wonder and awe. And that is something I can deeply relate to. And so maybe one of the things that this passage is inviting us to is to go looking for things to be curious about or to be amazed by or to be to, to find wonder in the mundane. So that's the first posture. The second posture, I would argue, is found in verse 24, which is, uh, it says, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but listened to his cry for help. What is a cry for help? A cry for help is the acknowledgement that we have a lot less power and control than we thought we did. So the second posture I would argue is a posture of humility, a posture of uh, the realization of I, I don't have all the answers and I don't know all the things that I wish I knew. And I don't have as much power and control as I, as I once maybe thought I did. It's not, it's not a surrender of control. It's an acknowledgement that I never really had control to begin with. So part of this journey is the realization of how little power we, we have most of the time and how little we understand or how little we can control. Humility is, is a posture of what, what do I have to learn here? What do I have to see here? Um, and probably humility and awe are connected in some sort of way. I would imagine it's very difficult to find wonder when you're when you lack any sense of humility. So the second posture is is humility. Maybe the acknowledgement of I, I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have as much control or power as I thought I did. And then the third posture, I think we're we're invited to uh, to uh, adopt. Look at verse thirty. It says, "Posterity will serve him. Future generations." 
will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So there is this sense that something has been done, something has been given, something has been received. Um, so I would argue that the third posture is a posture of gratitude, which is uh, all these things are connected. But we're, in, we're invited to practice gratitude, not, not just to pretend like everything is fine and not to, not, not to practice gratitude for things that don't exist or haven't happened, but gratitude for, the, for what is actually true. Not to pretend like things are good when they're not, but to, to look around and say like, okay, what do I have to be grateful for? Maybe, maybe your power went out, but then your power came back and everybody's okay. So maybe gratitude that the, that the power started working or gratitude that, that you had some place to go when the power went out or um, gratitude that there are people in your life. Gratitude um, that right now you're here and you're breathing air in and out of your lungs. Maybe it just starts with this little thing to be reminded of. So we're invited to practice gratitude for the things that are true. Not, not, to, not, not to gloss over the things that aren't that great not, and not to be grateful for the struggle necessarily to acknowledge fully acknowledging the my god my god why have you forsaken me but also acknowledging that there are some things that we do have to be grateful for and so to find those things in the midst of the of the struggle um can be very life-giving so there's that and then the fourth thing uh the, the fourth posture that we're invited to do is actually i think we can find this in two corresponding passages uh, verses six, beginning with, if you jump back up to verse 16, he writes, this is before the stuff that we got to before, but he writes in verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People are, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Notice how many singular nouns there are in this or singular pronouns there are in this. My, um, the, um, so it says, that's not a pronoun. Is that a pronoun? Is my a pronoun? I'm having a, Jennifer is good if you're out there, help me. Um, so anyway, dogs surround me. Pa a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands, my feet. There's all these singular nouns showing up in the, in the text. And then if you jump down to verse 22, it says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And then, um, and it continues to go on and talk, talking about groups of people, the collective, if you will, the assembly. So it goes from singular to plural. What is the move here? It is a move towards connection. I would argue that the fourth posture that we're invited to participate in is a posture of connection. This has been really hard for me this year because, you know, early on we were told like other people could be dangerous or you could be dangerous to other people. And so connection became a really kind of scary thing for a lot of us and remains kind of a scary thing because we're still not totally out of this. Um, it's hard to admit that we need other people. It's hard to admit when we have, have these needs. And so um, I, I remember uh, a couple of months ago, a good friend uh, re reached out and asked just like, hey, can I come over and sit on your porch? And this is right after sort of I had, I had announced like my own personal kinds of struggles. And, um, and, and I remember thinking like, I don't know if I can even sit on my porch with somebody. Like I feel so disconnected and I feel so removed from everyone. And I remember, so uh, my friend came over and sat six feet away from me. We sat on opposite ends of the porch 
um, and talked for a couple of hours. And I remember just how grateful I was that um, that my friend would would do this, um, that that he would take his time to um, to pour himself out because he was concerned about me. And just just a couple of hours sitting and having a conversation was it, it, it was a lot. I mean, it was I I, I felt uncomfortable for the first little bit and he knows that but also because like i it, it just when you get used to just not seeing people and not being around people and not connecting with people it becomes really like it, it can be a really stressful thing to re-enter that and i'm lucky uh that that i am here with caroline and with our kids because we we do have connection from within the house but to have somebody reach out from the outside um meant a lot more to me than than i expected it to it, it really was um, healing and I'm, I'm grateful for, for that friendship. And so maybe, um, I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're where I've been and the, the idea of connection seems risky. Um, not, not just from a, like, I don't want to be vulnerable with somebody, but risky in, in the sense that we, we, you know, we've been trying to practice, we, we've been trying to be safe, but also that comes with a cost. And so, um, what does it look like to connect? And I have, um, there, there are a couple of other friends of mine who are pastors who we talk on the phone sometimes. Um, and even, even that, even just like a, a phone call, even 30 minutes on the phone, just, um, catching up with friends who, who have, who sort of have a similar kind of rhythm to their life as I do. That means a lot. So, um, I, I don't know what that looks like for you, but th th this, this is the posture that it's being invited, that we're being invited to take as we look at Psalm 22. It begins in chapter 16, like I am surrounded. And then in the part where the, the er, things start to get better, he begins to recognize that he's not alone. And I think, I think there really is something to that. So there are these postures, I think. So as, again, we're, we're just looking at this one poem. And this poet, I think, is trying to work out what it means to go from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to things maybe there's life here anyway maybe 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 there there is some sort of divine energy that we can we, we can tap into that we don't even really understand most of the time but we have to somehow live in the tension between those two points we we live with a my god my god my god my god my god why have you forsaken me but also a and and we're gathered together and there is life here both things can be true and um and so I think this, po this poem, this passage, is inviting us to live inside the tension of both those things and to inv inviting us to look for new postures of reorientation, a posture of awe and of humility and of gratitude and of connection with other people. So I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know, um, I don't know where you've been or how your week has gone or how your year has gone necessarily, um, but maybe maybe at least one or two of these postures might be something helpful to practice as you move through this coming week. So, um, so may you find wonder and awe and curiosity. May you um, release your, your, <laughs> the, the illusion of control, perhaps, that you have. Maybe, maybe take a posture of humility. May we be grateful for the things that are good and true in our lives. And may we seek connection in whatever way is feasible and possible for us right now at this moment. Um, there will come a day where we can do this in person. Um, but until then, may we find hope and life in these postures. May we, may we internalize this poem, this, this ancient psalm, and may, may we hear the invitation to awe and humility and gratitude and connection. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for 
this, this psalm, we thank you that we are invited to, to live inside the tension between my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he has done it. May we find ourselves living in the midst of that. May we not be dishonest with ourselves about those things, but may we also find ways towards adopting new postures of awe and humility and gratitude and connection. And may we go through this week with our eyes open to new possibility. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.